So welcome, everybody. How are we doing? Enjoying this? Are we learning things? Yeah? I, I really enjoy this conference a lot because I get to take in a lot. I'm Renee Richardson from KFOG Radio. So being a terrestrial radio person in the time of everything that has happened for music and technology, this, this event is really interesting to me. And then I get to talk to cool people like Tom Luce. Does everybody know Tom? Tom? Oh. Yeah. People know who I am. (laughs) (laughs) From what do you know me from? Just kidding. Well, I'll tell you what I know you from. Tom Luce, as a San Francisco musician, his song Good Day was very, very prominent on KFOG for, I think, the year it came out and for quite a while. It really helped shape the sound of uh, AAA at that time for us, the local sound of AAA. And AAA is adult, adult album alternative in the format of the radio station. So I have known you a long time, but something I just learned today that I'm, I'm so... Tell people what you are doing today besides your music. Well, besides the music, I do, I do a couple of things. But um, one of the things I think you're referring to is that I work with, um, with artists and um, I, I work as a financial advisor to artists now. So Hence the jacket <laughs> yeah i told her that out so i said this is when i advise i do this <laughs> and when i play music i do this so <laughs> it's sort of just a joke but um yeah because i i just kind of remember going through uh having a record deal and having a publishing deal and receiving big checks and then i also know being an alternative artist and being an independent artist and receiving little little checks mm-hmm. uh and sort of everything in between and it's really hard to figure out not only how you're going to make your money, but how you're going to keep your money. And so those were, um, I had a background in finance before music and I thought, okay, I'm married. I want to do something different that I can do until I'm 70. Uh, and so that's kind of what I jumped into. And it's been interesting because working with artists, you know, everybody's different. It's not like one template you can apply to everybody. Right. So what, let's impart some wisdom. What would you have done differently, uh, with the money you made then? from what you know now. Does that make sense? Do you th- would you have done things differently? Well, that was the thing. And I, w- I worked with some pretty big accountants at the time and never w- did they ever say, well, why don't you take a little bit of this money and put it into an IRA? Mm-hmm. Why, why don't you take a little, why don't you open up a SEP, which is when you're, when you're, uh, when you have your own business, like we all do as artists or as, uh, I, I'm assuming we all do, but um, you can open up a SEP account, which is an IRA. You can put as much as, I think, 25000 or more into it, 25% of your income, and you don't have to pay tax on that money. So um, I had huge tax bills during this time. I was paying the IRS like 25000 30000 and wow. I didn't have to do that. I could have put that all into an IRA, and I could have invested that. And, and um, I really wasn't told that. Um, right. And that was a big thing. There's, there's also a lot of little things I think I would have done. Um, so the people at H&R Block weren't, like, helping you out in that area? <laughs> they didn't tell me that, no. <laughs> and I, maybe they would have. I was just sort of using an accountant that was working with other artists and that was pretty well known in the Bay Area. And, um, and he said, well, good news is, you know, you only have to pay 20000 on your taxes. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> <What's> the, <laughs> well, he, what he really news? said was the good news is you made money, yeah. right? Because that's a lot to, to pay that. And that was a lot for me. I'd never had uh, that much money. But... Um, I still do that now, and I don't, I don't make a lot of money. You know, I don't make the kind of money as an artist anymore, but I still do that. I still keep those little boxes for those types of things because I know if I don't do that, if I don't put that money in my retirement account, then I'm just going to give it to the IRS. Right. I'm going to give it to the tax man. Right, right. And then what about um, as an artist and being in the, in the business of making music as an artist – um, how do you determine how much you're going to spend on, well, in this case, technology? You do have to spend money in technology. How do you parse that out um, to your mind realistically to still continue to grow out of that? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, and that's, like a, that's a big question. It's going to be different, like I said, for everybody. For me, I always, I always consider that I need some money on the side. You know, as in, just, let's just say I'm just an artist. I, I got to have some money that I just put into a, a place, whether it's just ten grand or something. That in case no money comes in as an artist, we, you, you have to live on something. Yeah. You know, um, um, a lot of time artists, I think, just take all their money in and it goes right back out. Yeah. Um, and that's easy to do, especially if, if, if not a lot is coming in. But um, the way I find that balance is, I set money aside for my bills. I set money aside for. Um, 
what I think is going to go into my IRA. And then I say, okay, how much money is left? Um, what do I need to keep my business running? And then what can I, what can I invest into the business? And that's more about, you know, just do I need to buy a new guitar? Do I want to uh, pay for those crazy Facebook ads that show up? (laughs) I don't know if they work. I've bought them sometimes. I've paid 10 bucks. I've reached like 500 people. (laughs) But um, all those little things are what I kind of look at now. I think you have to to reinvest your money, but I think you have to sort of have a balance. Um, Tom, for those of you that just walked in, Tom, uh, local musician, but also is a financial advisor to musicians. So just to keep you, give you, give, keep you guys informed how we suddenly got on the money topic, um, which is an important topic to everybody who's trying to keep music as a business. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about your music making because you still do make music, right? Yeah. And uh, you actually started a band with your brother, did you? We, just, that- we did a CD, just a yeah. fun CD, my brothers and I, yeah. And... Um, because they were, you know, they were, uh, they were influences. They're older than I am. And they, uh, so we just got together and I, I took like the songs that didn't make it on a CD and I kind of threw it into a pile and they brought some songs together. And that was fun, you know. And the thing about music, and I don't know if, if um, I mean, how many people are artists in the room? I'm just curious. Okay. Um, you know, you can really get caught up in the business side of things. You really can, you know, and you, almost to the point where you look at your instrument and you go, oh, wow, I haven't sat down at my, at my instrument for a week because I've been, like, online or, you know, I've been, yeah. I've been uh, uh, doing the artwork for my CD or I've been this or that. And so I think, you know, for me, I learned this is just what I think is, is, which is best for me is that I, I have to make sure I, t- I take time to still do what I really, what really brought me into music, and that's uh, because I love for me, I love to write songs. That was how I expressed myself when I was younger. That was how I that was how I processed things I didn't know how to process at that age. So um, a part of me it does that. And so doing the the album with my brothers was just was also part of that. Was doing doing music for something that I just thought was fun. And I didn't expect us to uh, to make money off of that. And I didn't worry about us making money off of that. And we ended up making a little bit of money. I think people uh, like some of those songs and. I think most importantly is that we made some great T-shirts. <laughs> that was awesome. So first time my brothers and I on a T-shirt, that was fun. But that's part of it too, right? I mean, right. we we, we got to have fun doing this. Like we're artists and it can get heavy. Um, so yeah. Let me ask you this. You know, your songs have been uh, licensed to films. Um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, The O.C. Do you still chase that at all? Because that's good money, right? That is good money, and I never chased that to begin with, you know. Um, I think what I chased was songwriting. Mm. That's really what I chased, and I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, you know, I probably missed some opportunities because I didn't, uh, I didn't go after those things when I had um, the tools to go after them, and what I mean by that is that when I had the songs to really go after those kind of things, but... Um, but I don't, I don't really chase those things. No, I still, I still fashion myself as a songwriter, and that's really what I always thought myself, you know, uh, as I just thought myself as a songwriter and kind of had to perform to be able to survive. Yeah. How, how, can I ask you how that whole process works? How did you get a song in a movie? I, I have no idea that that, how that goes well, down. Yeah, it, it happens in different ways. I, I think once the song's recorded and, it, and it's out there and people get to know it, um, I think with 13 Going on 30, which was one of the, the songs that, that got in there, it was actually our label, uh, the president of the label. I was on Network Records, and he, um, he sort of pulled some strings and got that song in there. And that was a, that was a big deal. Yeah. That was a big re- revenue generator. But then I also know that um, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, I think it was, uh, just the music director happened to be a fan of the band. Oh. Yeah, so it's, oh, I think you always have to get your song to that person, you know. Um, but I'll always say this, and you, you probably say it too, it always comes back to the song. Yep. You got it. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I'd spend 90% of your time making sure you're, and you know, Dennis is, an, is another programmer. He, he's a, um, another person that knows this about songs. You got to have that song, that song first. Because your whole business, you don't realize it really, but your whole business is kind of built around that. Assuming that you are um, a writer or a performer and, you're, and, you're, and what you perform are songs, you know, as opposed to like maybe being a DJ or something. Right. <laughs> Right, or just play the record. Um, Hi. 
Karen, nice welcome. You. Thank you so much. I'm so Hi. sorry about that. No, no, no I was worries. Just next door, and many people are so passionate about data and the industry. So everyone was chatting afterwards, and I lost track of time. Sorry. Oh, we, yeah. we were just talking about Tom um, is a local musician, um, and in addition to being a musician, he also has used his financial background to um, to be a financial advisor for musicians to help them not make some missteps along the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> so needed. Money. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask you. I did have a question. I just went out well, I want to know what everybody is yes. curious about. You yeah. know, does anybody have questions? How, yeah. Um, what, like, what's the biggest questions you have about your own business? Maybe as an artist. There's a microphone right there. Okay, so this is something that that I uh, that I can pose to you guys while people are thinking about questions. In the case of. Um, in the, the case of getting your music out there to as many people as possible, we had in the news, of course, last week that Taylor Swift was pulling her music off Spotify. Yeah. And uh, thoughts on that? I'm not even going to give my opinion because I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> what are your, did you want to share your thoughts about that at all? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually think it's quite clever. I think it's good for the industry to have a bit of a reminder that content is king and that without musicians making music distribution is irrelevant um i think it was uh, also good though on spotify's part to not necessarily acquiesce i think their point was no we deliver a service to customers which is that if you uh, are a paid member or you're a non-paid member the only difference is that you have advertising in one situation and not advertising in another not that you don't have access to the full catalog so they can't change their entire sort of customer value proposition uh, just for one artist. I think that was smart on their part. But I thought that the message that Taylor Swift sent in that sort of stunt was quite, was quite intelligent. Um, I do hope she puts it back because I think it's a viable source of revenue. I think you get paid quite a lot of money, especially when you're streaming at such a high volume for an artist like Taylor or Beyonce, et cetera. Um, but I thought it was a good reminder for the industry. Um, she did go on, our, the company I work for um, that owns the radio station KFOG, they are in a partnership with Ardio, and we got a note from corporate Atlanta saying that she did strike a deal with Ardio for the ultimate users that you can get the record on Ardio, which I thought that made me step back and go, oh, this was just all a publicity stunt, <laughs> and there's something else going on, which maybe you need to do it. I mean, she's a machine, hmm. that little one. Well, I think maybe Beyonce set the precedent, radio set the precedent, this idea that now you cannot, because uh, everything is opened up, because the label's roadmap is no longer relevant, you know that the way it worked is that you get signed and the labels are sort of the experts on how to market and promote music. That's all, it's all gone. Um, but some artists like Taylor, Beyonce, Radiohead, who are riding sort of the tail of their success in that previous model, they're able to do super unique um, uh, sort of marketing stunts to promote their music that bypass the label and bypass the traditional routes. Um, so I always get excited when I see these kinds of things because you can learn a lot. Um, it, a similar example is when MRC, who's a boutique independent film company, they had this uh, pitch for House of Cards and they were shopping it around to different networks to premiere it or to buy a season or two. And Netflix actually said, hey, we want to do something really unique. We want to have it only here um, and only in-house. And that's another super cool stunt where people are bypassing traditional uh, ways of marketing and selling content and doing it in ways that are really more about the consumer. Um, and, and I was just going to say to that, and I don't think that that's going to, that, you know, you have to be a big artist to have that kind of impact with that kind of stunt. It's not going to do anybody any good if I pull my music off Spotify. I mean, it's not going to make a difference to me, except people won't have access to my right. music, you know. But I think um, what Taylor Swift was doing was sort of making a statement, whether it was marketing or whether it was not. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Kieran, you just came back from speaking at the Future of Music Policy in Washington, D.C. I noticed that on your website. By the way, Kieran has the craziest, most awesome website that is so packed with information. I do not know. It's probably bad marketing. I should make it a little bit more sexy, (laughs) go for that sleek, you know, minimalist thing that I'm seeing a lot. It was like, how much time do you spend writing on that thing? (laughs) (laughs) Planes. Planes are the best place for that. Oh, when you travel. Very Mm -hmm, good. mm -hmm. But can you tell us uh, what went down in D.C. and what you spoke on? 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I think for me, the thing that I was excited to be brought on. Uh, well, first of all, I, you know, did you? Did I? Should I share my story for one yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. Just so that know why am I even sitting on this panel yeah. with a yeah. um, I grew up in New York City, and I studied mathematics at Georgetown University. And when I was younger, my parents were always pushing me into uh, into politics and political science. Um, I, I also did a, a field in political science when I was at Georgetown, and I went to D.C. thinking I would be working for Obama or Hillary Clinton. Um, I did a lot of internships there. But the truth is that I had been a drummer since I was 10. I was always playing. And in D.C., finally, when I turned 21, I could start going play out in the clubs. You know, it was awesome. I used to sit in with this reggae band on Wednesdays, and there was a salsa band on Thursdays that used to take me in. And they really helped me move from being um, sort of this, like, drummer as extracurricular to, oh, you know, you're a real musician. You're welcome. You're part of this family. And that made me shift. I said, oh, God, I want to work in music so bad. Why is it that by day I have to feel like, you know, I'm doing something real and credible, which is political science or mathematics. Um, but then at night when I'm super happy, it's like not taken as seriously. So I took a bit of a, a leap of faith and I went out to, to L.A. And I got an internship when I graduated at Interscope Records, which is uh, an imprint on, U- on Universal Music. And they gave me a job as their first digital analyst. And I was just on a panel before this uh, next door speaking about applied analytics to music and music marketing. So I worked there for two years. And an artist named MIA was signed to the label. And I love her so much. I really just love her. I love her. I love her. It's just like the best. And, uh, and right when I was, it was my second year of being at Interscope, she was putting out an album after four years of not doing anything. And I went up to the product manager and I was like, am I needs a drummer? And, you know, I'm Indian and it looks right. And like, you know, I'm a woman. Like I see it, you know, let's talk about marketing. here. And uh, I was kind of just playing around, but she took me seriously, which was really cool. She was like, all right, if you're for real, Kieran, send me a video. So my friends and I got together. We made MIA a video. And uh, Diana, who was the product manager on the Interscope side before MIA, sent it to her. And that night, MIA responded to me directly in an email. And she was like, I love the video. Uh, we're not thinking about tour yet. I'll hit you up when I do. Which meant that they were still working on the album in the studio. I just got goosebumps. That's right. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah. It was really, it was, I mean, I was happy just on that. It's very validating as an artist when somebody else sees your work and likes what you do. Um, and then from there, you know, nothing had happened with the MIA thing. And I really wanted to take my understanding of data and analytics to the next level. And for me, it was to have a sort of higher level business experience. And I applied for my MBA. Both my parents were MBAs. And so it sort of was in our family. And I got into Harvard. So I started there last fall. And right around that time, I got offered the MIA gig. So they actually did email me back and they were like, all right, you know, do you want to come on the tour? So in the summer before my MBA, I was just doing the tour, and it was so awesome. We went to Japan. We went to Osaka. That's the name of this room. It was amazing. Um, And then school started, and they're like, great, so come on, let's go to Poland and the UK and Chile and Argentina. And all the shows were on the weekend. So I was like, okay, I want to make this work. So for my first semester of uh, business school, I was doing both. No Um, way. Yeah. 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 So it was... um, it was stressful, it was, uh, but it was amazing. It was basically like when you have two things that you really care about, like I'm sure your story is the same. You know, you have this passion for, for finance and you have a skill set, but then you also have your love and your music side and you want to just like protect both. You know, you're like, <laughs> totally. I got to make yeah. it right. I got to mm-hmm. make it work. This is a blessing. So that was that. And now I'm in my second year um, of school and really thinking about how I can be someone who is developing various skill sets and nurturing these different sides so that I can be someone valuable uh, in our industry, you know? Um, and that is a large part of what I was speaking at, uh, in DC, this idea, because, you know, the audience in the DC policy summit was largely students. And I know that I could have really used a mentor when I was on the younger side trying to figure out like, okay, I really want to be a drummer, but I I like to be able to be in school. Hi. (laughs) And, uh, I want to be able to, to do that. So that's a lot of what I spoke about, the balance, not rejecting that, being able to welcome both kind of, um, being part of a new breed of someone who, uh, who can actually make both sides work in a valuable way. How do you, how do you find that balance? Hmm. Well, you know? I think we're lucky because the industry is in this flux. And so a whole diverse set of voices are actually welcome. Uh, had I been interested in music maybe 20 years ago, I think my path would have been to have to pick one mm. and then to start in the mailroom and then to get someone's coffee for like 10 years and then hope that Jimmy Iovine even knows like that I exist. Yeah. And then maybe I can have a career in the music industry. 
But now I say, like, what fun. What fun to be in an industry that needs new ideas, that's thirsty for new business models, that's, like, begging us to come up with, like, the most intelligent thing that we can. Um, and for that reason, I think it's necessary to have as much experience in different fields and different parts of the industry as possible as a consumer. Like, I try to download all the newest apps. Um, we have MoodSnap in the room. David is a good friend of mine. Um, his app is amazing. Uh, we met in Boston last year. So trying to really stay afloat of, like, what are the latest technologies out there? What's going on? Uh, and then how can I uh, be co- a contributor to that? That's great. When you were, I'm curious about when you were at Interscope and you were doing uh, digital analysis and I talk for a little bit. No, analysis, you know, analysis of analytics, both work. It's great. What what did you learn? Like what, what did you, like, was there anything surprising? Um, well, the first thing is just that you know, Interscope didn't have an analytics department yeah. because this data never existed. I mean, no one cared about how many Spotify streams you got, how many YouTube views you got. It was irrelevant for the longest time. And honestly, like, we can uh, knock on Interscope for a little bit because it was 2011 and they hadn't set this stuff up. I mean, right. YouTube was founded in, like, 06. I mean, yeah. for God's sake. So, you know, you know, and that's been the problem, right, years. with the whole label experience is they're just so far behind they're the times to, to get on board. But then I'll give credit back to Interscope, which okay. is that they did bring me on as an analyst and they did want to start looking at this data. Um, It was a cool job because I did a couple of very experimental type research projects. Um, One was, you know, the the traditional model of leading up to an album is you look at how many um, pre-sales they have of a single, for example. Um, But one thing we try to do is look at how much chatter there is on Twitter in the three months leading up to an album. And we found a bit of a correlation between how many mentions there are to one album sold. So across three different artists that I did this with, I remember Kendrick Lamar was one of them. Yeah, it was Kendrick Lamar, Lana Del Rey, and Azalea Banks. They're all three signed to Interscope. So I did this project three months leading up to their album. We found a correlation of like 33 Twitter mentions to one album sold. So that was the amount of mentions that we wanted to see in the three months leading up to an album release that might correlate to uh, X amount of, of album sales. So that was one project. So then I'm just going to jump to what if I was Interscope, I'd be doing is paying people to mention me on Twitter. Is that a thing that exists? Uh, do true. do artists do that? Um, I, I never saw that. I didn't think that they needed to do that. I think Interscope has enough back-end channels where basically the idea of Traditionally, the idea of a label is that you bring you bring an artist into the funnel, you market them with your amazing master plan, and then they become Eminem, Gaga, Lana Del Rey, just big name, Madonna, whatever. You uh, two, exactly, uh, Black Eyed Peas. And then because you have these really strong heavy heaters, you can then bring the next group of artists in, have them open uh-huh. for these artists, have those artists tweet about the younger artists, um, sort of bring them into the fold. So you're constantly this well-oiled machine. I think that's how uh, Interscope was able to use the data, more by having the bigger members you, uh, use Twitter and like opening for each other as a way to bring the junior members up into the fold. I, I want to ask both of you this question, um, more of a self-serving thing, because I've always been in terrestrial radio. It's, it's been my world for so many years. Um, where do you guys as artists see radio in your world? Does it play into your world? Do you think about it at all? I do. I mean, I, I know the power of radio, and I know that, but it sort of now becomes clouded with the power of internet radio, which becomes clouded with the power of internet radio and YouTube and Facebook and social media. But I think it has a part, you know, I think it has a part. If anyone's ever received airplay, you know the difference it makes, you know, especially if you can get on a top 40 station. Even if you can get on a triple A station, those, those are all valid places to get your music heard. And uh, getting your music heard means people come out to your show, and people come out to your show means you make money. Hmm. Um, you know, one cool thing that I learned um, at school last year is this concept of what is the job to be done? Has anyone heard of this research, job to be done? The idea is that instead of like maybe the Apple model where you tell the customer what it is that they need, jobs to be done is the opposite. You say, what is their journey map of their day? You know, when they wake up... Mm. They brush their teeth, they go to work, you know, they go to the gym, they see some friends, go to sleep, you know, whatever it is in the demographic you're targeting. What is their exact journey map? And what are their various jobs to be done, a.k.a. entertain me while I set my alarm, entertain me when I go to the gym, um, give me the right beats per minute so that I can achieve a faster mile, mile time for the marathon that I'm training for. You know, what is the job to be done that they're trying to accomplish? And then how can we build a musical product that fits that to the best of our ability? And to the point of terrestrial radio versus online radio, there's two different jobs to be done. With terrestrial radio, it's not about what the consumer is trying to 
get. I think that's the push down model where they're saying, if we play only 40 songs on rotation, because of the familiarity of it, because I've heard it so many times, it builds an affinity. You know, even if I don't like uh, the Taylor Swift song, because in that month, I heard it so many times going to work, it's imprinted in an emotional memory. I remember that time when I had just moved to LA and it was so tough and like I didn't know anyone. And then that song plays and like I know it and I hate that song, but I know <laughs> it. You know, that is the model. And I think that's why extra, uh, the terrestrial radio, not extraterrestrial, just on Earth. Um, <laughs> That's, that's the next word. That's cool too, though. Yeah, <laughs> why that works. With online radio, with Pandora, let's say, I just sat on a panel actually uh, with a representative from Pandora, and you know, the idea is entertain me in the background while I do my work. Entertain me in the background with a, with a theme I like while I have my friends over. Entertain me in the background while uh, I'm doing something else that's taking the foreground. So if you look at it, it's not like Spotify where you have to choose, you have to know, you, you as the user are like the, um, the curator. Mm-hmm. Instead, you outsource that job to Pandora. You say, I'm going to give you one song I like and y'all are going to do the rest, which is play songs uh, for hours and hours and hours in the background, don't trouble me, and it's right because it's a certain theme or a vibe that I'm looking for. Um, so for that reason, I actually see them as non-competing. And maybe I'm the only one on this, but I don't see them as competing because they're achieving different things mm-hmm. for the user. Yeah. What's the job to be done there? I actually don't know much about satellite radio. Well, and, and uh, I always think of satellite radio great for people who are into sports, right? Because if you have always been a Yankees fan and then you move to San Francisco, but you want to catch those games and that vibe and that whole thing, you can listen to it on satellite from wherever you are. You don't have to have the um, antenna or bandwidth or whatever. Um, and what about, and uh, been up since three? This is what happens when you get old. You forget your questions. Um, does anybody in the audience have questions of these guys? Playing the drums for MIA and like stopping out at Harvard, what, yeah. would, you, what would you have uh, done? I would play the drums for MIA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Anybody else? <laughs> Tom, I feel bad you haven't gotten a chance to talk in a while, but um, <laughs> I'd be curious to hear more about what um, your clients, the artists you work with in the, on the financial advisory side, what the first things they're looking for when they come to you, or is that something that you they don't know as artists w- what they need from the financial side, and you more provide that to them? Well, it's always different for each person, and it ranges from people that I've uh, that I've met that maybe haven't you know haven't even filed tax returns in three years because they don't feel like they've they've either they're scared or they don't have the money or um, or people that don't necessarily know how to organize their 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 expenses and their and their income so that they know how to manage that when it comes to things like tax time or just figuring out how much they're making or where they're making it. and then, it, and then it, it goes up to people that have actually been successful in the business and then have large amounts of money, and they just they want to know what to do with it. You know, Do I put it in stocks? Do I put it in bonds? Do I invest it? Do I put it here? But basically, it's still a scale that applies to everybody, and you kind of clean up the messes with people, and then you can say, okay, now that we're at this point, um, what are your goals? What are your goals for your business? What do you want to achieve? And what do you want to do with your money so that you put yourself in the best position to do that? Do you think that's a smart financial investment to have some sort of business manager in addition to a, an artist manager? I, I, th- I mean, it depends on who you are. It depends on your background. I, don't, I think if you don't know anything about it, like I didn't know anything about that stuff when I, when I was dealing with money, it would have been really useful to me. Um, I think if you desire that and you think it's useful, then you should check it out and see if it is, you know. But I don't think you should uh, let it scare you because that stuff is really not complicated. That It's really not. And... Um, I think what she's talking about is very complicated, but um, um, probably not to her, though, right? Which part? Well, just the analytics and all that and that <laughs> stuff you get into that. It blows my mind. Um, the finance stuff, is I, I find it to be very simple, and I'm, a, and I'm an artist, you know? I mean, I'm a songwriter, and, uh, and so I was able to learn that stuff, and I, it makes me happy to be able to share it with artists because I feel like it's, empower, it's empowering for them. Tom, agree that even on the financial side, what's most important is, is trust, whether it's someone like yourself or a business manager? It, yeah, it is trust. Yeah, it, it is trust because you know even you know even telling somebody that um, you haven't filed your tax returns in three years mm. is a scary thing to say, you know, or that I have uh, a Kickstarter that I haven't finished in a year and a half or something. Um, so trust is is most important. Yeah, and so um, that's you, you definitely have to start there. Um, 
on topics of things that have uh, happened in music news, if we will, what are your guys' thoughts on the U2 album and the way that rolled out and the way that played out? Either one of you want to have any thoughts? <laughs> if for I, anybody I, that I doesn't... I really didn't like that. You didn't like it? I didn't like it at all. I thought it was so, like, like uh, just too wanting to be cool. Um, I, didn't think it, I didn't think it worked. I thought it was a little presumptuous that all of us want that album in our iTunes. I think also, you know, iTunes is becoming more and more irrelevant, and I think that seemed like a bit of a... Um, yeah, like a gimmick, but it didn't seem like a gimmick that was cool or unique. It felt a little bit, um, uh, yeah. It didn't. I, I thought it didn't work. It didn't resonate with me. I, I'm actually not giving any tangible reasons why. I think it just it just rubbed me the wrong way. I think um, it's uh, uh, for me. I think I think we're looking at a little bit. Which, of does the, everyone know uh, about this YouTube? All right, YouTube we should thing? explain it, of course. Does oh, just in, just in one line. Sorry. So uh, about a month ago, when Apple had put out the new uh, iPhone sixes as well as the iPhone Watch, the iWatch. Sorry. It, they also uh, pushed the entire new U2 album to everyone's iTunes. So everyone around the world, as soon as they signed into their iTunes that day, or opened up their iTunes, the entire U2 album was in their iTunes, um, just as the most recently downloaded item. And it was their way of launching uh, the, new, the new album. And everyone got it for free. Yeah. And as a, I, th- I see a generation, this is another generation gap, just because I'm of an age where I was like, ooh, I got free music on my right. iTunes. <laughs> like, but yay. they also kind of, um, they gave it to people that didn't ask for it. You know, well, that's exactly it. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think that I would want the album if I had the ability to choose. But if it just showed up in a spot that I, I didn't expect it or I, or I didn't ask for it, that might kind of freak me out a little bit. Exactly. It, it might just yeah, rub me the wrong way. I think. I think you're right, and I think iTunes touches such a large demographic of people. You actually can't treat every user the same way. Mm-hmm. I right. think maybe that's why it didn't work because some people, yeah, maybe it was super exciting, especially if they're big fans. It's cool, um, but for many people. U2 has not done anything that relevant. In fact, it's been about Bono and his... I, I would say I know more about Bono and his, uh, his phila- philanthropic work yeah. than I know about U2 as a music group. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please add. This question is for Kieran. Hi. Um, Hi. I, uh, nice glasses. Thank you. I just got mine, so you I'm looking too. always for inspiration. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking forward to seeing you speak. Um, I'm a musician, but I'm also into all these data myself, mostly yeah. UX... And design, and for me, I've had more of a career as a musician, but I'm interested in moving into the tech um, direction. And cool. I have a question: Do you feel like you have to juggle or balance these interests, or do you kind of feel like it's one part of your um, your one being, if you want to call it that? Yeah. And that you're just kind of like living. Like, do you have um, feel like split in, mm-hmm. or that it's I would kind feel of all one split if I worked in a totally different industry. Then it wouldn't work because then what the situation would be is I'm in a workplace, I'm, in, I'm at my job, and I have a show that night. So then I have to go to my boss and say, please, please, can you let me out at like 5 p.m. today so that I can go and get the amp and the drums and move it to the venue? Whereas when I worked in music, if I told my boss I had, um, I had a show, she'd be like, great, what time? We're all there. Go. You're late. Like, how are you going to get there? You know, like, get on with it. Um, and maybe that was because I had a good boss, but I think it's because she worked in music. So then it's not attention. In fact, not only am I not begging my coworkers to come, they, like, want to see what I'm doing. It's cool. Uh, I think also if you can show that you as the artist can make your job at work better and then you as the analyst can make your music better people trust you more it's like oh i see it it works if it's constantly making each thing worse and suffer then it doesn't work you know then you're saying oh i'm making trade-offs i'm late to this thing i'm too hungover for that thing you know (laughs) then it's a disaster but if you can really show that one makes the other better, then it's believable. And also with UI, with UX, Spotify just came to the Harvard Design Conference on Saturday. What day is it today? What? Tuesday. Tuesday. So uh, a couple days ago. And they talked about how they're trying to really do all this user testing to understand, like, if the background is black versus white, how mm. that makes a big difference, like about user affinity. Um, if they're looking for an artist, how do you get them to the place that they're trying to go? Are they trying to look at the album? Are they trying to get to just a single, a remix? So I think that's where you as both the user and the artist can like Im- impact design mm-hmm. and understand those people who are just in the tech world. You are going to say something else? Y- yeah? yeah, just a small follow-up. But... Um I, I think in a room full of musicians or artists, it's pretty easy to justify an analytical or even business background. But flipping the other way, how do you feel that having an artistic sensibility or being a musician benefits the business world? 
I can give one example. Sometimes when I get off work and we'd have to go, like, you, you're working at your desk and they'll walk by and they'll say, like, oh, do you want to go to the Imagine Dragons show tonight? Do you want to go to the Lana Del Rey show tonight? So for me, um, I would go to the shows to be able to map what was happening in the theater or in the venue to the conversation that the next day I would see on Twitter or online in terms of mentions. And I think basic understanding of how um, the band is able to put things together, knowing about feasibility, knowing what's doable versus not, puts you in a position to give non-naive suggestions. So if I see the band doing something really cool, maybe in the meeting the next week, I can say, hey, you guys should like bring up the drums because I noticed the audience reacted so well to when there was a solo, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's like one way. You have a basic understanding. So you sound street smart. You don't sound like a fool. You don't sound like a fan either. Like nothing's phasing you. Yeah. That's how the drums are played. Like, that's what a solo looks like. It's not like you're not a fan. You're, you're part of that side as well. Yeah. You mind if I chime in on that? Because yeah, yeah. I think that was something that it was hit home for me when you asked that question. Because I had to go from, I really going from music to finances, it feels like a total uh, role reversal. And for a while, it really did. And as a matter of fact, I, I didn't realize that I was going to get it, I was going to tie it into music for a long time. But I realized um, that I, like, I felt like a part of my heart was sort of drying up like a part of my spirit and my soul and the artistic side of me. And I realized that these talents that I had were starting to disappear. And I thought, really, the only way I'm going to survive doing this other job, which I really um, was, I was interested in, but I didn't feel like it was um, my passion necessarily, was to tie it into music. And so I thought, well, how can I tie it into music? You know, how how can I make this one decision that's right for these reasons, but also tie it into this other thing that's right for these other reasons? And, um, and I've been, been able to do it in other ways, you know, sort of like working on nonprofits and putting on shows and being able to perform it, but working and then raising money for, for things like, like cancer, breast cancer. And so I, I think you've got to step into this, I don't know what's going to happen, but sort of trust, too, that if you think these two things need to coexist, um, then you'll find a way to make them coexist that, in a way that's best for you, and you might be surprised, perhaps. Nice. You've been wanting to speak. Sorry yeah. about that. Oh, just... Um, I wanted to follow up on the Apple YouTube thing because I have an informed opinion about that. Um, I'm uh, uh, Apple's original music person and um, uh, was a protege of Steve's. And um, I just have to say that I know there were political reasons why that went down. And it had everything to do with Jimmy coming on board and, you know, uh, he and Guy Siri architecting that with Tim Cook um, and garnering a fair amount of money for U2 as a result. Um, so it was really a promotional scheme for you two, more so than it was uh, looking after Apple customers. Okay. And it's something I know for a fact Steve would never have authorized for that very reason. Well, so, you know, I just had to say something about that. Yeah, that lands better. Like, it's, but, my, it's my arena. <laughs> but though, how, when there was a phone or an iPod that originally came out with all the iPods. That was different. Yeah. That was different. That was um, Steve and you two uh, collaborating co- for co-creating red. Co-creating and collaborating uh-huh. a, yeah, a very specific red-oriented product that would appease all of those constituents. And it was carefully architected. It was strategic. Mm. It was proactive. It was designed with consumers in mind and with the charity in mind and the band in mind. And uh, that was a very different scenario. That's not at all what this was. Um, so, so it, I mean, it's a bit like Apple bought the record. Exactly right. right? That's exactly what happened. And yeah. handed it out. And now sound scan accordingly. Yeah. 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 And now, wait, what did you say? Sound scan what? Yeah. What if sound scan? Again with the sound scan. Um, <laughs> it is a big game. Hi. Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate everything you're talking about. Um, I kind of just wanted to ask you about the YouTube thing. And um, Karen, you said... You kind of mentioned that you two may not be relevant um, in this world where, like, Taylor Swift and, like, you have all these really young pop stars um, who have kind of, like, appealed to the masses. Like, what if it was someone like that? Like, what if it was someone more relevant? Would it have changed your thought in that? Or No, no. I meant more in my world. Like, as me, uh, maybe I'm being targeted in my sort of, like, scope of what I'm seeing with those kinds of artists. Also, for me, like, for each user, what they have on their Instagram is, like, they're a different experience. Like, I'm seeing what FKA Twigs is posting, right. not what Taylor's posting. Right, so it's all relative. Then. That's what I meant. So I felt like okay. for YouTube, maybe it would have been relevant for a certain group on iTunes, but for me to also receive that, in the same way, that group who doesn't care about Taylor Swift, if they have been pushed that, it wouldn't have been 
been good for them either. Right, right. That's more what I meant, you know. Okay. And I agree with you for like, I think it's silly to say that one a group is more relevant than the other because now all of us can get our content from such a large amount of places, not just like a record store um, and then you know the couple radio stations the way the way it was. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I have questions for both of you guys. In, again, we're going back to balance because we, we have our, our work world and hopefully our um, artistic world and our work world come together. But then, Kieran, you had t- you mentioned briefly how, um, how many apps you go through and yeah. you try everything. Yeah. And Do you have any uh, advice for people who just don't want to spend that much time dr- trying everything? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Do you like? Do you look to certain people and what they do first, or do, are you just you're just seeking knowledge at all times? So you eat this it up. A good question. Um, actually, you know, the place that I'm getting most of my information is just from places like this, from these tech conferences, where you go to people who are the most passionate. I mean, just going either as an. I'll tell you a cool thing with this with this conference. I had bought my ticket in August. Just as an attendee, I was so excited. I checked my school schedule, and I saw that we had Veterans Day off, which is today. So I was, like, thrilled. I can go to SF for one day for this conference without missing class. It was fantastic. And then uh, Brian Zisk, who's running this conference, was at the Future of Music Policy Summit last week. And then he invited me um, to speak a little bit today. But I think, for me, it's always been a passion about going to places like um, South by Southwest is like a religious mecca of a trip every year. You know, you just go and find out about everything. I think going to the places where people care the most and meeting them and mm-hmm. shaking hands, that's like, for me, always been the best way. So, and what about you, Tom? How do you balance, how do you, uh, balance technology into your world? Because we're roughly the same age, and it's come upon us really fast like we didn't grow up with it we're just like whoa suddenly there's so much information well because i consider myself an artist before anything else you know i consider myself an artist um at least when i look at a career so i i realize well uh, what what good will i do myself by by um spending time in that arena when i'm not a pro at that and no matter how much time I, if I, no matter how much time I spend, I'll never be a pro because I don't think I, um, I desire to be a pro. So when it comes to that, I say there are people that do that better than I do. What is it? I always just try to say, well, what is it that I do that's unique, and what's the best thing that I do? Exactly. You know, and and if it's if it's uh, drumming and analytics, then that that's what you should do, and that's what <laughs> you should do. You know, and if it's songwriting, then that's what I should do because that's the biggest gift I have to offer people, yeah. and that's the uh, and that's the biggest gift I have to offer to myself. So, um, so I balance things that way. I just I but I you know I get lost, like all of us. I, I go off the path, but I use that that conversation with myself to get myself back on track. Do you, um, do you feel like playing a song for us? I could play a song. I sure. would love I mean, it. It's, I'm, uh, a, I'm a Tom Loose fan, and you guys need to hear his music. Well, I was, you know, was going to play something that I've never played really um, in public before, except, um, and it's, a, it's, it's really like a really personal song. As a matter of fact, it's the song um, that I, I wrote for my, for my wife when we were getting married. But um, it, it was funny because um, I, I wrote the song and it was very personal. But I thought that I would play it because it, it, I ended up making some money off of it, um, which which was really funny. But um, I'll tell you that when I finish. Okay. Do you pay her residuals? <laughs> That's part of the thing. <laughs> Someday you won't believe it, but we'll make it through. We'll make it through And back in school The kids they used To laugh at me And they'd laugh at you Cause they just Couldn't understand How words Can make a difference So believe me Now I speak The truth All that I've been Waiting for is you And you put a ribbon in your hair You tied it there, you tied it there And you said your mirror never lies And you looked at me, you caught my eyes And I just couldn't look away I just held still beneath your gaze Then I heard my words fill up the room 
Some things will be different, but I won't change. I feel the same, and I'll stand up and put out my hand, just like the way I always have. And tell you I am waiting for all that I've been waiting for. Thank you for that. I just thought, you know, here's the funny thing is like, okay, I, so I played that song and it couldn't have come from a more truer spot of like really loving somebody and caring for them and knowing you're about to embark on this journey. Um, and then it got licensed on the Bold and Beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I thought, well, this is great because this really, you know, um, and, and not to mention, you know, it became other people's wedding songs, too. And my wife did say, hey, you know, what are you doing? That's our song. And I said, right, you can have the money. And she said, okay. So, um, <laughs> but um, right I think that's kind of where that, where that balance comes in. You know, I just really believe if, you know, if you, if, for me, if I do what I, I feel like I'm, I can, you know, the, the gifts that I have, if I share them, or if what it is that I love, I'm passionate about, you know, it's, you know, it's not that you'll always find money, but um, I think you'll find some sort of reward, and sometimes it's monetary, and then, with that song, that was just a funny example. And it was funny because they randomly choose, uh, chose that song to be in, in actually in a wedding scene on that, uh, on that soap opera. So. Wow. That's great. Yeah, so there you go. That's a little great. music. Yeah. Thank you. And I think we have a couple of minutes left. Before we let each of you go, um, how is the live music scene? When you're playing out, you're traveling the world. I don't know how much world traveling you get to do um, uh, living up there in Sausalito with your kid and your whole financial world. Um, yeah. But, but uh, how is the live music scene? Um, is it alive and well? Are we all good? Are the kids coming out to see the live music? Kind of depends on where you are. Huh? <laughs> is it? Is it? Does it depend? Like you find? I think it does. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a there is a great live music scene here, but I think it's always changing. You know. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know what's been your experience. What do you mean? Like how many people come to shows? Like, how many opportunities? Are people there are engaged for... when you go play shows? Are people engaged at shows? Um, I, I I've watched the landscape of San Francisco change in that it was really engaging. Like they, there were music clubs everywhere, and we've yeah. gone through a lot of closures, a mm. lot of club. Anybody who's plays here we've lost a lot of really good live men live music venues so i'm just wondering if that's happening everywhere is it just symptomatic of what's happening in san francisco right now with with the amount of money that's coming in um so i'm just curious it, it, are things good out on the road mm. well i mean the mia show is a bad example because that's not a live music situation yeah. everyone always goes to the mia shows yeah. those are a lot of fun they're very like sort of high-end well, done really you live well. in boston yeah. do you yeah. get, do you go out to live music a lot so? i do yeah. i do it's fun i i think uh, boston is a good uh, strong live music scene um I think my favorite, though, actually, was when I was living in L.A. Because I, I even though the problem is the L.A. audience, like, everyone's in the industry, so everyone's just kind of like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when they watch the shows. But everyone does come out, you they know? Do. And everyone shares with you what's going on. That's what I loved about going to shows. People actually go for the opening act when I would experience that in L.A., which I love, because it's pure. They yeah. want to know who's, who's getting to open for FKA Twigs, who's, who is Alt-J taking on the road with them. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so then, to your point, I think it does matter though if you're in a city full of a music aficionados you know because they will put in the time they see it, it, it worth their while to go for a show from 8 to 11 as yeah. opposed to like 10 30 to 11 yeah yeah um Good. i like yeah. hearing that and the other thing is is you know i I've, I've found that you really have to find your audience you know for all the artists that are in the room you know it, it, you don't have to play the film more you know if, if you're if your audience is at you know the uh 
like the the open mic, then that's where your audience is, you know. Right. And it, it and you know it's it's really hard to uh, to get into a club and sell three hundred tickets and do it every night and to tour and all that stuff. But um, it's not hard to find an audience, you know, whether it's five people or ten people or a thousand people. You know, it's just about you getting out there and it's about mm-hmm. us all getting out there and, and sharing what we do. I think mm-hmm. too. Um, okay. Well, oh, you have a question back there. Good. So I I also live in Boston and Karen and I know each other from there. And I feel like there's there's a big sort of underground show scene, like <laughs> So Far Sounds put stuff on in lofts. And the warehouse you saw me play at. And the warehouse I saw you play at, which was this crazy, psychedelic, very like 60s, I mentioned San Francisco kind of vibe. And you were just killing it. With, she has this band called Young Old Man that's awesome. You should check them out, too, <laughs> if, you, you. if you haven't seen them. But, you know, I go to a few things like that in... Uh, in Boston, you know, I, I could go out to uh, to the Paradise or the Middle East, but then there's like this whole underground thing where people have amazing art lofts and spaces. They're hosting stuff. It happens all over Brooklyn. I, I don't know if it happens here, but I'm sure it does. And as an artist, that's a platform for you to reach really yeah. engaged, passionate people who care about live music because it's a community and a culture you wouldn't be going in the first place. Right. So, like house parties. We have yeah. the yeah, yeah. house concerts. House yeah. concerts. And, but there's structured, organized. Yeah. I think so far is in like 12 different cities around the country right now doing these kinds of things. That's so, great. Yeah. You know. I love it. S-O-F-A-R. So far sounds. Yeah, it's all over the world. It's awesome. It's really a cool, cool concept. So far, sounds you should look at it. You sign up. I That's can actually great. add one thing to this concept of like reimagining even the show going experience. One cool thing that I really liked learning about um, at school last semester was, or two semesters ago, is this concept of blue ocean strategy, and it's sort of a framework for reimagining an industry and reimagining the way something tr- that is done traditionally can be done differently. Um, The idea is that either you can compete in the red ocean. So you can say, okay, for me to be a venue, let's say, what has been done traditionally? Okay, well, you've set up in a good part of town and you make sure you have 300 people available and you have a bar and, like, I'm there for you. have a couple of, like, things to compete on. And then you want to have the best bar, the best venue, the best sound, right, the traditional things. Or, and that's considered, like, the red ocean because it's bloody and there's boxing gloves and everyone's trying to be the best in that space, competing for pretty much the same audience. Or... You can go to the blue ocean where nothing's been done before. And there's four questions you can ask. Of those, I identified a couple of things that matter in context of a venue, right? Like a bar, the, the stage, the location, etc. Which of those things can be eliminated, reduced, raised, a.k.a. embellished, exaggerated, or simply completely created new? And looking at this warehouse example or so far sounds example, this is a total like perfect example of blue ocean strategy being applied to the venue experience. You can also apply that to iTunes. I would say that iTunes um, embellished how many offerings there are. They said, we're going to give you everything. They eliminated this idea of having to buy a CD in its entirety, right? They just made you the ability to buy one song at a time. Um, They... Also eliminated uh, sound quality, I would say. They reduced sound quality. They said that's not something that people care about, and we're going to be just fine doing it because they identified what's going on. People didn't care as much. Um, And they increased convenience. They gave us the iPod. Uh, And then with the Create, that's the number four, they created the iTunes Store. It was an online place to go to formally buy downloadable MP3s, which was the alternative to either buying a CD, which was not working for people, or doing it illegally. So... You know, this concept of blue ocean strategy, it was one of my favorite things because you can apply it to so many different parts. Like, you can apply it to getting a gig as a drummer. You can apply it to giving um, advice to musicians. All sorts of uh, different places to reimagine. That's great. That's awesome. You guys have been wonderful. Any last thoughts or comments? Thanks for coming, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the song. Thank you, guys. Just lovely to meet you, Karen. Tom, always good to see you.